welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is Lothar Mateus, a former World Player of the Year and winner of the World Cup, the European Championship, and the UEFA Champions League, among other things. We've had some great interview guests lately, including Jurgen Klopp, Gabriel Marcotti, and Lisa Baird, so check those and other interviews out. It would be absolutely huge for this podcast growth if you could subscribe, recommend us to your friends, and take just a little bit of time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We'll have Lothar Mateus on soon, but I want to take a few minutes and talk soccer news with my friend Chris Whittingham, who's our show producer and a co-host of the Chelsea Miked Up pod, which you should definitely check out. Chris, how are you? Doing great, Grant. How's it going? Doing well. Good to have the Premier League back on Wednesday with a couple of games. Kind of weird games more than anything, but it it was still good to see the game being played again. Let's start with... Manchester City, Arsenal, 3 nothing, Man City. David Luiz, man, what's up with that? <laughs> yeah, it, it's a more than succinct and perfect prompt. It's uh, the David Luiz hat trick. It was a mistake leading directly to a goal, a second mistake leading directly to a goal, a penalty given up, and a red card. It's not even a hat trick. It's I don't even, what's beyond a hat trick? It's extraordinary. And there is a story that actually came out during the coronavirus break from Amy Lawrence of The Athletic, who laid out the amount of money that Arsenal paid to get David Luiz, who has an £8 million transfer fee, £6 million to intermediaries, and £10 million in wages. £24 million for one season of that. A 27-minute substitute appearance. And the thing that most stuck out to me was just how short Arsenal were of options once he comes off. They already started with uh, Socrates, and I forget the name of the other center back, neither of which are particularly great. They go to David Luiz as their third choice after an early injury. Like, who do they have left? Who are they going to turn to to solve their center back problem? So many bad choices over the years. Mustafi's not a good player either at this point. And, like, with David Luiz, like, he did all those things, had those game-defining screw-ups in a very short amount of time on the field. Didn't start the game does all this by the 50th minute sent off and I feel badly for my Arsenal fans friends you know like it's the same folks all the time on Twitter and I think some of them sort of take a a ghoulish pleasure in it by now because how else (laughs) are they supposed to act about this but I don't think David Luiz should be playing as a center back at this point in his career I think he should be a defensive midfielder wherever that is Maybe that should be MLS. I don't know. I've always been one of David Luiz's bigger defenders. Like I think just because of what he can do with passing the ball and those diagonals, long balls that he plays are, I think, key to certain teams' attacks. We saw it last year with Chelsea. But his one out of 10 is a right one out of 10. But you mentioned that sympathy you have for Arsenal fans. My brother and my dad are both Arsenal fans. I just texted them today during the game. It was like 65 minutes gone. I just wrote simply, I'm sorry. And <laughs> it's funny the way that you described it where like Arsenal fans almost have schadenfreude towards themselves where like they are experiencing their own misery with pleasure like it is the oddest sensation but yeah I just think you've seen Arsenal what money their owners have spent has all gone towards attacking players they've tried to 
patchwork that defense and, and the goalkeeper situation up, you know, with a very limited amount of budget. I think you see it. That defense is so threadbare. The holding midfield is so threadbare. And I, unless the Cronkies decide that they want to sink hundreds of millions of pounds into that defense in order to fix it, which especially after a pandemic, it does not seem like they're going to do. I think they're going to have to figure this out with management and guile and I don't know what, but it's they seem a long way off from being a Champions League quality club. Yeah, uh, the impact of this result being that Liverpool can now not clinch the title this Sunday against Everton. Liverpool needs six points to still do that. So if they want, they can take care of it in the next two games. Nobody really expected that you know Liverpool would really have a chance really to clinch this weekend. I, I certainly didn't. But from a City perspective, you know, nice finish by Raheem Sterling. Phil Foden comes on at the end, gets a goal. You know, not maybe classic City, but not terrible. Yeah, I thought Arlo White and Graham Lasso were correctly pointing out that in the second half, they were reaching those intensity and the Christmas of passing that I think we thought was going to be one of the hardest things to kind of gin up because that's a, a sharpness, a chemistry thing that gets built up over the course of the season. There's a reason why they call it mid-season form, but there was really a moment in that second half. There's a 10 to 15 minute period where obviously Arsenal are man down, but still City were passing right through them and creating tons of chances, but first half in particular I didn't think that they were that special Kevin De Bruyne really ran the game but for the most part it was those David Luiz mistakes that allowed uh, the floodgates to really open and one of the things I wanted to point out, though, about Raheem Sterling is that all the time, and, and one of the things we've talked about in the kind of aftermath of the systemic racism conversations that we're having is the way that we talk about players, and in particular, black players, where pace and power are always the two words that get associated. And I, like many others, find that abhorrent. Actually, uh, Zito Madu, formerly of SB Nation, was the one who kind of really pointed that out to me. But one of the things I've always noticed about Raheem Sterling, he misses a lot of chances. He's not a great finisher, but he's always in remarkable position. I actually think on an instinctual and smart basis no one I consistently watch in the Premier League is a smarter player has that kind of guile in the penalty area to get into good positions like Raheem Sterling I actually think his is a very cerebral game which is not normally how we talk about players like him we talk about their speed and their pace but it's just one of the things I noticed because when David Luiz makes that mistake Sterling always seems to be the player for City that's in that position yeah high soccer IQ in my mind describes Raheem Sterling's game does not particularly describe David Luiz's game at this point. <laughs> uh, not the first phrase I would use. And I'm almost looking at this stretch for City as almost like preseason for this Champions League tournament that is going to take place in August. We got confirmation that they're going to finish, I think, in the first week of August, the final round of 16 games for those that haven't finished them yet. And then it's going to be an eight-team knockout tournament in Lisbon, which is going to make our August, I think. But I certainly think City has has a chance to win it. And it might be the last time we see him in Champions League for a couple of years, but I, I think they got a decent shot. I think Bayern Munich does too, but I think City's going to have a bit of an advantage by not having time off like Bayern is. No question. And I mean, Bayern's going to have more than a month off uh, before they get into the, the business end of that competition. But the thing about the second leg is... Obviously, you, take, you you feel that advantage of having won the first leg 2-1, and then you're going back home. But City, even if they do play at the Etihad, are not really going back home in the traditional sense. It's not this cauldron. So if Real Madrid went away and won at Man City, 
you know, tune ill and, and got through to the quarterfinal wouldn't be that surprising. But you mentioned the stakes that I think are the reason why I think City have a real chance to do well in that competition because they will probably know by the time that August competition is played whether or not they're going to have a two-year European ban. And if they do, you'd have to imagine it's a last hurrah, let's all go for it so we can win this title and, and finally get a European trophy in the cabinet after all these years with the new ownership to kind of make good on the promise of Manchester City and actually win something in Europe, this might be their last hurrah. And it probably would be Pep Guardiola's last hurrah with Man City in Europe because you can't imagine him staying for a full two-year ban. A lot of those players probably won't stay for the full two-year ban. So it's their last chance. Before we get to the Copa Italia final, let's talk about the other Premier League game today. And one thing stood out about it. This was Aston Villa 0 against Sheffield United nil, And it should have been one. For the visitors, uh, goal line technology, we hear a lot of complaints about VAR, but we never really hear any complaints about goal line technology, and it completely, utterly failed in this game in a way that uh, is kind of shocking. And there was a statement afterward, so the what happened, the, the ball literally, clearly, to everyone's eyesight, goes over the line, goalkeeper brings it in over the line in a really ham-handed way, and... The referee's watch doesn't go off, doesn't call it. And in the end, I I, I guess I'm stunned that there was not some mechanism when it's so obvious an error to all of us to VAR as well that there's no way to like rectify that. And so there's the shocking aspect of the error of the mistake itself, not being able to get it right. But then not being able to rectify it like is crazy to me. Yeah, and the the statement, just to kind of put words to it, they basically say that the seven cameras that are aimed towards the goal mouth uh, were significantly occluded by the goalkeeper. <laughs> this is the statement from Hawkeye. Uh, I've never heard the word occluded before today. But yeah, I mean, it was incredible. And one of the things that is just so frustrating to me about the Premier League is they've tried to institute VAR. And they're just like, it seems their number one priority is not getting decisions right, is we cannot let this affect the flow of the game we can't have it interrupt the game and so why Michael Oliver hasn't just said just using common sense hey can we all stop and look at this can we all stop and say hey was that a goal down the other end like can you look at it and you tell me and it just seems like they're so allergic to trying to stop the game to figure this out and you're right I mean before this incident goal like technology had a 100% approval rating like everyone's like this is the best thing and I love it when those kinds of goal line technology decisions are huge in a match and Hawkeye said that this is their first mistake in over 9,000 matches that the Hawkeye technology has been used so I mean I guess it was bound to happen but it really seemed that first game between the fake crowd noise between the goal line technology and the quality of the play, really, between Aston Villa and Sheffield United, like, they weren't ready. The Premier League was not ready. This was kind of like their soft launch in every respect. And uh, it seems like a lot of things were failing. Let's just act like today didn't happen and it's actually starting <laughs> over the weekend. Because yeah. you're right. You're totally right. And um, I think sometimes, I, I, I like the idea of following procedure, but the the whole point of goal line technology, the whole point of... VAR is to get things right. And I'm actually a little disappointed. Maybe I'm more of a sportsmanship type person. I swear to you, if Marcelo Bielsa's team had been had that happen to him, he would have instructed his players starting the second half to put the ball in their own net. Should we be upset that that didn't happen? Um, I, I think it's a lot to expect out of... Again, we're, we're talking about the stakes of this match. You would think, all right, these are two clubs. They maybe aren't American glamour clubs, but Aston Villa... 
that point for them is huge to try and get out of the relegation race. And for Sheffield United, the two points dropped for that goal not going in are devastating because this might be their one and only chance to ever make the Champions League. If they'd won the game, they would have been two points off Chelsea with eight games left to play. And so the stakes in this match were massive for these two clubs. So if you're Aston Villa, I mean, I don't know how you can expect them to put the ball in their own goal when that point for them is precious, right? They, they need every single point they can get. I understand sportsmanship. There are things bigger than that, but I don't blame them necessarily given the moment. I am going to hold it against them for not putting the ball <laughs> in their own net. I am a Marcelo Bielsa stan, and I, I am disappointed. So as we transition to the Coppa Italia final, won by Napoli over Juventus on penalties, I want to ask you, which was more annoying today? The way the Premier League did the fake crowd noise, which was so <laughs> subpar compared to the Germans, or the advertisement slash stadium fake flag nonsense things going on in the Coppa Italia final. Yeah, I, I'm going to go for the Coppa Italia final by a million miles because I'll actually give the Premier League some credit. The second game of the fake crowd noise was better. I'm not going to say it was Bundesliga quality, but it was better. What, I mean, it was for a full 90 minutes. Like, I was kind of waiting because in La Liga, we've seen the superimposed fans or whatever, and during the water breaks and before the game, there are big ads on the, on the stands instead of the fake fans. And so I was kind of waiting for this Coppa Italia. Like, when are these going to disappear? Like, is, this, is it going to be a Coke ad for 90 minutes? And it was a Coke ad for 90 minutes. Like it was, and it was like, what even are they meant to be? Is just jumping flash paper? I don't like, what is it? I don't even know what it was meant to be. And married with a lack of crowd noise. I mean, Mark Donaldson, Matteo Benetti did a really good job on the commentary, but it's just, it's so distracting. Like what is it, what purpose is it even serving other than getting a sponsor on the screen for 90 minutes? Yeah, I hope I got good money out of it. I really do. Because like, I'll take the La Liga crowd blobs over the, the Copa Italia fan card wielders or whatever they are. But like, I don't like the blobs either. And, and the thing I feel bad for are like the American broadcasters, right? So like, people were blaming NBC for something that is not in their control. Like They're getting this fake crowd noise from the Premier League or from Sky or whoever is actually producing it, just like Fox was getting credit for something that they had nothing to do with. They were just taking a feed from Sky Deutschland and they were getting credit for this fake crowd noise. Just as maybe ES, I, I, didn't, I haven't seen, maybe ESPN is getting blame or criticism or tweets like, well, what is this? Like They have no control. They're getting some feed from Italy and they're like, they, I can't even imagine some producer and some control going, what in the world is this? Like We're broadcasting this on ESPN 1 for two hours like this is absurd so Juventus pretty poor overall yeah. in this game I thought at one point this season forget about Napoli in European competition but domestically they were a bad team for a fairly long stretch of time this season to the point where I just am surprised that they'll they end up with silverware yeah, you looked at uh, the. I was watching some of the pre-match coverage, and they showed the league table. Napoli is thirty-nine points. I know that uh, Serie still has, I think, thirteen match days left to play, but that is nothing at this stage of the season for a team like Napoli, who's been a fairly regular Champions League contestant. But you mentioned how they've had bad stretches. Juventus certainly have as well. Like their goal-scoring tally is way down. They brought in Maurizio Sarri to try and improve that, and it seemed like it's gotten worse. Like their style has gotten more languid, and the last two years for Sarri's style have not gone well at all and he still remains without a domestic Italian trophy when you're in charge of Juventus you're meant to win all of them so you'd imagine they'll win Serie A but they've got a proper title race there as well so I'm more interested in how poor Juventus have been and how much they needed their 42 year old goalkeeper to step up today in order to even stay in the match he's about the only thing good about them uh, Gigi Buffon huge double save late in the game to 
allow it to go to penalties. The other question I have is, why is Cristiano Ronaldo not taking one of the first penalties? Yeah, I mean, I guess you can't really expect that you're going to miss your first two, but you kind of have to, right? Like, you have to get on the board. I think, I wonder if Ronaldo kind of wants to take one of the last ones. He wants to take on that pressure to clinch it. But if you go through a penalty shootout with Cristiano Ronaldo on your team and don't have him take one because you've lost by the time you've gotten to him, you've probably gotten your order wrong. I mean, obviously, Portugal won the Euro in 2016, but the previous Euro in 2012, when they went out on penalties, they had Ronaldo in the fifth slot. He never even got an opportunity. It makes you wonder if he wants the fifth slot, right? Because it seems like Ronaldo would probably, you know, lay down the terms. And I think he wants, like, the photo op of him sealing the penalty shootout and ripping his shirt off and, and winning. Like, if vanity is in play, maybe potentially Cristiano Ronaldo, assume that it could play a factor. It'd be so Cristiano. I think you might be right. I'm, I'm <laughs> imagining Cristiano, like, walking over quietly towards Sari before penalties and, like, holding up five fingers. But, like... Actually, you don't want that. You want him at least in the fourth spot. And I would say earlier, just to set a tone, because I, I like it was just terrible for Juve when they missed the first two today. But yeah, give give Reno Gattuso some credit for at least playing. His team played the way he wanted them to, and that's how they've gotten success lately. It's not always the most exciting thing to watch, and this game is was not exciting by any means. A couple quick things I want to wrap up with before we get to Lothar Mateus. Um, Germany. Dortmund lays an egg at home against Mainz. I think with Bayern having clinched the title now that there's not a heck of a lot to pay attention to in Germany, except maybe a little bit of the relegation zone. And Americans, you know, Weston McKinney had another goal today for Schalke. He's about the only thing that's going well for Schalke at this point. At the very least justifies his position. He will continue to play regardless of who the manager is because you know that Schalke are eventually going to get, get rid of David Wagner because they can't possibly keep him uh, given how bad this run has been. They're not going to get relegated, but this has been a complete disaster. And yeah, at the very least you get that notification, then you see the goal on social media. All right, Weston McKinney scores. That's really positive for him. But man, that whole situation is a tire fire. And also Tyler Adams getting a start today for RB Leipzig. Interesting to me, you mentioned Dortmund laying an egg. This won't really affect him that much, but Leipzig 2-0 up and concede two late goals to Fortuna Dusseldorf. That kind of puts their Champions League spot back in peril, where if they'd won the game, they would have, you know, coasted through six points clear of Leverkusen with three games left to play, and that would have been probably that job done and dusted. So they're still in a Champions League race, and obviously, as Americans, we want to see Adams continuing to play in the Champions League. So yet more work for them to do. Well, it's great to have you on the show, Chris. Let's do it again sometime. Absolutely. All right, let's stick in Germany and my interview with Lothar Mateus. Our guest now is one of the greatest players of all time. Lothar Mateus captained West Germany to the World Cup title in 1990, played in five World Cups, won the Ballon d'Or and FIFA World Player of the Year awards, and had a legendary 22-year pro career. Lothar, thanks so much for joining me. It's great to see you again. How are you, my friend? Fine. Everything is okay. We have afternoon. You are in the morning in New York, and uh, life is going well. We are coming a little bit back to the normal life here in Germany. I am still healthy, and this is the most important in this moment. Yes, I'm very glad that uh, that you're healthy, that all of us here are healthy. I want to talk about a lot of things here today. I want to talk about the German Bundesliga, which did such a good job coming back to play again before other leagues. I also want to talk about an anniversary that is being celebrated right now. It has been exactly 30 years since you won the World Cup in 1990. And when you think about that tournament, 
what are the things that you remember the most from what happened in 1990? Uh, the celebration after the game. I think this was uh, the best of this tournament with the World Cup. It was happiness for us because uh, we had a great support from our German fans that was coming to Italy by car, by train, by plane, and give us a big support. And uh, we had always the home game, a lot of German fans always in the stadium, and uh, they make us very happy, and I think we make them happy. And uh, this was a strong tournament. Uh, we had uh, big games against Holland, against England, against uh, Argentina in the final. And it uh, was a wonderful World Cup with a happy end, a beautiful happy end and uh, great celebration with our fans after the final. So I'm curious, which players from that 1990 Germany team do you still speak to the most? I think we had a very good team, but when you say, speak about one player, I think Andreas Breme played a great World Cup. He was not scoring only the goal in the final with his penalty. He was uh, playing an excellent World Cup from the first to the last game. He made like a left defender, three goals, he gave four assists, and uh, it's wonderful to play with him, and uh, we are still today best friends. Oh, great. So you still talk to him a lot. We were sitting yesterday together in Munich and uh, we celebrate our World Cup 30 years ago, yes, in an Italian restaurant. <laughs> Fantastic. That's great. I'm sure that was a lot of fun. I'm curious, in what ways do you think the sport of football has changed since 1990? And in what ways do you think the sport is mostly the same now? Uh, same is nothing anymore because uh, life is going uh, and is changing. And I think in my sport, in the food, in soccer, I think the speed was changing. A lot of new system, uh, high-speed player, technology is more included in the soccer. And uh, the players get better teaching when they are in the academies. Yes, I think it's uh, everything is going faster, like generally in the world. And uh, I think the football... Uh, is in the same way like uh, the life from 30 years ago till today. Everything is going faster, faster, faster. And the football, when you're not fast today, you have no chance to play in a big team. So you were the captain of a team that won the World Cup. I have always thought it would make for an interesting book to interview all the World Cup winning captains who are still alive to learn about leadership. When you were the Germany captain, what did you learn about leadership and how to be a leader? When I was a young boy, I think I was uh, learning to be a leader because my parents was working very hard to, to give the family what was possible. And for this, I have to care when I was young, five, six years about myself. I, nobody was bringing me to the school. Nobody was bringing me to the training session. I have to organize my life alone. <laughs> this don't mean my parents didn't love me, but uh, my parents didn't have time for me because they had something to do. And for this, I, I was planning everything alone. I have the attention of myself. And I think uh, this helped me a lot later to be the same leader in the soccer team. And uh, I was a captain in the youth teams. I was the, a young captain in my first Bundesliga club in Borussia Mönchengladbach with 19 or 20 years old. Uh, then I was the captain of the national team. And I was always proud to be maybe this special person from the team and the first uh, contact person from the coach. And uh, I was giving always my best, not only for me, I like to give the best for my team. But first you have to give a good performance to be a leader. You cannot talk 
and no perform and then you'd like to talk about what they have to do first you have to show them what they have to do and you have to make the first step before you can uh, give them uh, a wise like a leader so you played against Diego Maradona in the final of the World Cup in 1986 and again in 1990 you played against Maradona in Italy how would you describe what it was like to play against Maradona in those days? Yeah, Maradona was a very smart player. He was very fast. He had good dribblings. He had good movements. He had a good ball control. And when you cannot catch him immediately, when he gets the ball and he was coming with the ball against you, you was always the second winner. This means you have to be focused uh, for the ball and to Maradona and when he get the ball you have to attack him because when he's coming with the speed against you then it was no chance because of his beautiful and strong movements and uh, Maradona was uh, not only a legend he was a genius and uh, I am proud to had so many games against him with the German national team with my club team from Inter Milan against Naples in the Serie A in Italy. And uh, we was uh, coming always before the game and we saw we have respect to each other, not only me to him, the same heat to me. And uh, this was a good experience. This was a great moment for me. He was uh, uh, on the same time playing on the highest level like Maradona. When you see Maradona today, what do you guys talk about? about the history, about uh, the games, about the World Cups, about uh, the competitions, yes, and the same about another things around the football, or not only about football, yeah, we speak about lifestyle, I was talking with him two years ago because he get a little bit weight, what, uh, what he's doing, but he told me, Lotta, I have problems here, I have problems here when I make a movement, I cannot make this movement, and sure, I, I like to drink, I like to eat, yes, uh, something like this, normal, yeah, when... When you have friends and you don't see each other every week, you have so many things to talk. Let's talk about the Bundesliga. Bayern Munich is about to win its eighth straight league title. What do you think that Hansi Flick has done to turn around the season for Bayern Munich? First, I know him 35 years now. He was my neighbor when we played together in Bayern Munich. And then uh, 2006, when I was coaching Salzburg in Austria, he was my assistant coach. We have a good relationship. And Hansi is somebody who is talking face to face and not from up to down from the same level. And I think this is very good uh, to have this touch with the players. And he's explaining not only the main players, uh, the leaders, the captain, he's explaining the same to the young players or the players who are sitting on the bench, why they're sitting on the bench, what he accepts from them. He has an open relationship with his players. And I think it's very important for the players in Bayern Munich to understand what they have to do to play. And he gives the team a good atmosphere. And uh, in Bayern Munich, the people, when Hansi Flick was coming, they start to walk together. Before, you had a little bit the egoist players was more singing about themselves. But Hansi Flick built a team with a good atmosphere. And when you have this in Bayern Munich, you will always win the titles because the quality of Bayern Munich players are much more higher than in the other clubs. Did it seem like Flick deciding to use Thomas Müller more made a real difference. Not only Thomas Müller is the same as Jerome Boateng. Normally, Boateng was not anymore on the list for the first 11. He was not in the squad in the first 18. But uh, Hans de Flick was talking with him. And he, he was the uh, second coach from the national team when Müller and Boateng won the World Cup 
six years ago in Brazil and uh, he knew this player and they had an open and a nice conversation. And uh, sure, Hansi is focused for the football all the time from the morning till the evening and this he accepts the same from the players and uh, I think he gives Boateng maybe a change in his mind about uh, professionality from a soccer player because Boateng was not anymore Boateng like six years ago but uh, he was uh, pushing him to don't give up to show everybody you are still good enough to play for Bayern Munich and the same with Thomas Müller talking with Thomas Müller he give him a right position where he can bring his quality and his power inside in the team. And uh, Hansi is working in the smallest detail and this make him uh, to be a great coach. One player who has had success so far at Bayern Munich is Alfonso Davies, the 19-year-old yes. <laughs> from, from MLS, who's had a real impact at left back. What do you like about Davies and in what ways do you think he can still improve? First, I think he's the biggest surprise in the Bundesliga. They come, he came to Bayern Munich like an 18-year-old guy from the MLS. Nobody was accepting he can play, especially in this position, in the first team of Bayern Munich, one of the best clubs in the world. I think he's the fastest player in the Bundesliga. He's very fast. And what I know from teammates he likes to learn every day. Sure, he needs uh, more experience, but what he's working in the defense and how he's playing in the offense uh, is uh, make a fantastic job. And uh, you can see when he was not playing last Saturday from the beginning, Bayern Munich has, uh, on the left back, they had a lot of problems. And uh, when he come in the game, Bayern Munich was changing the, the style of the football with him because with him it's coming speed, it's coming energy in the game. And uh, this makes him so important for Bayern Munich with 19 years. And do you think we might see more Bundesliga teams interested in young players from Major League Soccer? There might be a little more respect now after Davies? Not only from the Major League Soccer. I think in the Bundesliga, it's an interesting uh, league for young players because they see not only Davies. Davies is a good example, but we don't have only Davies like a young player in the Bundesliga. Jordan Sancho, who was coming from Man City. No chance with 17 years in Man City. Now he's the most expensive player in the German Bundesliga. He's 20 years old. He has uh, 18 goals and 17 assists in this season. And uh, it's the same Dembele, who is playing now in Barcelona, they come to Germany and get the game practice. And this is most important for young players. Don't think so much about the money. The money is coming from alone. You have to make the performance. And when you perform well, nobody has to think about money because this you will get. But the performance, first you need the practice, then you have to perform, then you get the experience, and then you will be very, very rich. <laughs> there there are several young Americans who also have come to the Bundesliga to play. If you had to pick one American player that you like, who would you say? I like Adams, Tyler Adams from uh, RB Leipzig. He, I like him very much. Uh, number six player, very smart, aggressive leader. With 19 years when he was playing, he was one of the leaders in the team. And he's not playing so long now in Germany. And especially he was injured a little bit. And Apple Leipzig was missing him in this time when he was injured. And I think he can be a wonderful player and a very important player for this uh, club in Leipzig. So with Bayern Munich winning so many titles in a row, what do you think it will take for Borussia Dortmund or RB Leipzig 
or someone else to have a real chance of winning the title next season? When Bayern Munich is walking hard and concentrate, then it's very difficult for all the other teams in Germany and the same in Europe to win against Bayern Munich because uh, they had good players, they had the right system, they're still hungry. They, they never like to give up. Yeah? When they win six or seven titles in a row, they like to win the next one. The next year they like to win again. Uh, they are hungry to win titles. And this is the mentality of Bayern Munich. So there are three young German stars who could have big transfer deals soon, probably more than three, but the three, three of the biggest ones are Timo Werner, Kai Havertz, and Leroy Sané. If you could only pick one of those three players to have on your team, who would it be and why? Depend which position I need. They're all three offender, but they play uh, in different positions. Sané is a wing player, Werner is uh, more in the center, and Havertz is coming more from the second row. But my favorite player, I, normally I like to buy all three, but I don't have the money. <laughs> and when I have the money for one, I don't have this money because it's a big money what you have to invest. My favorite player is Kai Havertz from Bayer Leverkusen. Number 10, always good runs, very fast, good technique. I think he will be the next big star in the German football. Nice. The European Championship, Euro 2020, should be taking place right now, but obviously it's not because of the virus. It's taking place next year. After what happened at the World Cup in 2018, how do you feel right now about the German national team? I think uh, not we, the coach, learn from this what he get uh, 2018 maybe he was believing too much the world cup winners from 2014 and the team was too old or was not any more fast than us or mo not any more motivate he make a couple of mistakes he told us but he get the second chance because he was working very well the last 14 years with the german national team and uh, i think he he find a new generation he find a new style of players we were talking about Boateng and Thomas Müller. They kicked them out. Mats Hummels too. They play still for Bayern Munich and they play excellent. But he believed more the younger generation, more the faster player. And for this, he decided to find uh, a new way with new players. And uh, we believe him. We were talking now about Leroy Sané, who is Manchester City, Timo Werner, who's changing now to Chelsea, Kai Havertz, maybe the best German talent what we have now in this moment in the Bundesliga. Yeah, but this player will be our national player too. And sure, they need maybe one or two years more. But uh, I'm sure we will make uh, better results than 2018. We will come again in finals or in semifinals. We make great results again, another big teams. This was an accident. But we learn from the accident, and then it's sometimes good to have an accident. We're wrapping up here with Lothar Mateus. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you for doing this. We had Jurgen Klopp on my podcast this week. He's about to win the English title with Liverpool. Why do you think Klopp is so successful? And do you think his next job after Liverpool will be coaching the German national team? This can be, but Jürgen Klopp has so much power and so much energy. I think he needs a daily job. And for this, I wish he stay long as possible in Liverpool because this energy from Liverpool and Klopp is the same DNA. And I think this is working very well together. I wish him only the best and I wish him a lot of titles because uh, nothing is more nicer than you win titles in the soccer and uh, Jürgen Klopp is on a good way. Now uh, in the Premier League, uh, last year he won the Champions League. He will win more titles with his character, 
with his style, how he is playing with Liverpool, with his team. I wish him only the best and uh, he's a great guy and a great ambassador for Germany. Lothar Matthias, it is always a pleasure to speak to you. Good luck with everything you're doing over there and thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for the invitation. All the best for you. Stay healthy and hope see you soon. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I can't tell you how much that helps. I'd like to thank Lothar Mateus as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. I also want to thank Taylor Rockwell and Daryl Grove of the Total Soccer Show for everything they've done to help get this show off the ground. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time.